Hey everyone, it's Amber Love of Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget, we are an explicit website and podcast. So, if you're easily offended or under 18, you should probably not be here. And um, we might have some minor spoilers today, but I don't really think we're going to give away like the big reveal when I'm talking with Chris Kosak, who is the creator of the comic The Default Trigger. It's 54 pages full of conspiracy theories about student loan debt. So, Welcome to Vodka Clock, Chris. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, yeah, it is like um, we're kind of getting Chris here as he is like probably hasn't even unpacked his boxes yet after a big move. Yeah. <laughs> having having a baby, moving across the country and all that stuff. So, yeah, exactly. so he's like kind enough to fit this into into his schedule to talk about the default trigger. Um so let's get some background first so that people can just uh, learn who you are, where you come from in comics, and, um, you know, what brought you to this point where you made this uh, really awesome creator-owned book. Well, um, I'm a professional graphic designer. Um, that's what I do for a living. And I've always been into comics since I was a little kid. I think like a lot of people, um, I have my this spiral notebooks full of really awful kid comics that you draw that were just copying you know, superheroes and stuff that were popular, you know, back in the day and um, kind of went to art school and, and, and saw lots of different things and kind of put comics away for a while and, and looking at other things and um, wound up and was working in the movie industry briefly and doing that and, and a whole bunch of things. And I, I decided to go to, back to design school and become a graphic designer. And um, from there, I was, uh, I was actually interning at an art book publisher um, called Passion and, uh, as I was on the way out of the internship, I noticed uh, there was this big book about DC Comics on their desk, and I was talking to the art director. He's like, "Oh, this is our next project," and I was like, oh, "That's cool. I used to like comics, you know, before." And he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, uh, I don't really know anyone who's uh, who works here in the comics. Maybe you can help me on this on like a freelance thing." And it was a big 75th anniversary book that they did for DC, and it was like thousand pounds. But um, I started working on that with them, and that kind of slowly got me interested in comics again, looking at all these superheroes and. I started before you know it. I'm at the store. I'm I'm, I'm doing some quote unquote research. I'm I'm buying comics and I'm picking up stuff and I'm reading them. And this is pretty neat. And then before you know it, I started listening to podcasts and um, seeing what's out there. And I started really getting in getting into it. And uh, I, I don't know what happened at some point, but I was like, you know, I've always wanted to to make comics. And I think you know, with the design thing, kind of telling stories anyways. And maybe I should try my hand at it. And uh, I just always had a lot of uh, like storytelling. Uh, but I wanted to get out there, and I was always looking for different places to do it, and, and it seemed like comics became a really good place to do all the things that I knew how to do, and then tell stories as well. Uh, and then uh, I just kind of started making my own stuff and, and, and getting it out there, and, and, and here we are. I love how you how you described the the crappy old notebook that everybody had in yeah. school. It was, it was just one of those things where you, you could – just doodling on anything. It was like, I can remember my sneakers being covered. Oh yeah. <laughs> Your clothes, like my jeans would have things drawn on them. And, uh, and then they would just go through the wash. It didn't matter. You draw on each other. <laughs> yeah. I got, in, I got in trouble because I was a Catholic school growing up and um, I have like these, like these composition books that I use as my uh, notebook as my sketchbooks. I was drawing some weird, you know, because you know, like a like a queen or whatever, you're drawing. Sometimes can draw some some weird, like violent stuff. And I think one of the nuns saw it and got me all in trouble. Called my parents in for a conference. It was all 
really awkward, like, why is these guys with axes and guns and blowing things up pictures? Well, like, he enjoyed nice things. Like, he enjoyed nice landscapes. So, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm a boy. I don't want to, I watch a lot of G.I. Joe. I don't want to draw uh, pretty landscapes and things. But, uh, yeah, and it's just a very really normal thing. I mean, I I would um I either drew cartoon characters like Snoopy or um or just doodles, like actual doodles, just little geometric spirals and oh, yeah. Yeah, triangles yeah. and just everything that just, you know, until you had an entire page covered and yeah. you know. Like sometimes you it can a, be really cool stuff. Yeah, and I remember we had to do like the, um cover our school books in the uh, the brown paper. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. cover those with all kinds of really badly, crudely drawn versions of superheroes and Bugs Bunny and whatever else I could think and doodles, all kinds of random things. Whatever I could figure out how to draw, I was kind of trying to draw it. And so, you know, you, know, you figure out how to draw like an airplane and all of a sudden you have like a thousand pages of airplane fighting because you can figure out the three triangles to make an airplane, you know, and you're, you're, you're happy because you can do that and it looks like something, you know, and then, then you figure out how to start drawing a little better. Well, besides the nuns that weren't very happy with your <laughs> artistic impressions, um, was there anybody that you had growing up that was actually really encouraging and supportive? Yeah, it was kind of funny because um, when I was in ninth grade, I, I went to um, – I got sent to an all-boys uh, Jesuit Catholic school for my first year of high school. My parents thinking that would be that's a good place to, to learn to discipline or to be safe. And it was like the worst place because you just have a lot of rich kids with lots of money – and so it became like a really kind of scary place. Um, and so I didn't do well there. And so I, I wound up going to, um, my parents took me out of there and put me into public school, which we didn't know was like a pretty good pub, one of the best ones in the state where I grew up in Maryland. And uh, they had a really good art program there. Uh, the teacher at the time was this kind of nationally recognized uh, high school art teacher. And he had he had kind of, uh, his name was Walt Bartman, and he, he, he prided himself on, he had all these sending kids scholarships to art schools and all these things, and he got some awards for his kids. And um, they had like an AP art, like art program, and uh, you is basically it's like studio art class, and it's kind of where the art kids hung out. But it became like a little bit of a clubhouse in the sense of like you take your last few periods of the day in there, and before you knew it, you're just hanging out in this place, and it was really cool. And it was also really, really good at teaching art and um, very instructional. And so before you know it, I was doing that like all the time. I was going there. I was may have skipped classes and hung out there instead, you know, and with all the art kids and we'd be doing things in class and we ran like another workshop outside of the school. And so we go down there for like live figure drawing and um, classes in the summertime. And so it became this really like positive thing. And it wasn't so much about teaching us how to be artists, but, but I think it was teaching more about um, seeing and looking at the world around you. And, and he's like knowing that you're not all going to become artists when you grow up but this is going to help you, and, and this is what he's really passionate about, and that kind of rubbed off. And I think that was the encouragement, like, you know, you could do this if you want to. Um, we, have, we try to teach anyone skills and try to figure out ways to, to help them. What was also really cool was that you would kind of find what you're interested in, and then you would find, like, maybe artists, like, art history books that were, like, more towards your, your aesthetic. So if you were using, like, crazy bright colors, you might start showing you, like, Matisse or, like, Fauves, or if you were into, like, you know, um, Dark, darker stuff. He'd show you some like old Albrecht Durer etchings, and you could pretty much find anything, any kind of influence for anyone. Um, so that was always pretty cool. And so I kind of developed a love of art history and things there. Uh, and that's kind of part of what got me out of comics in some way. It wasn't really like direct, but just seeing there was like more to art outside of um, 
kind of what I was seeing on cartoons and comic books. And that was, at the, to that point, my only real experience of anything kind of creative. Well, I don't think I've ever heard of an AP art program before because at least in my school I don't I don't remember hearing of that. We had AP maths and sciences. Yeah, um, we, yeah, we had all that too, but for, I think he somehow got this thing. He built this thing from nothing and like every spring we had like a big in the um the high school like the like the auditorium, the with the gym. We would convert it into like this big art festival and we would have like everyone kind of get like almost like a science fair, you go like a booth. And you put up your work and for the different levels you'd have, we had like, we had like ceramic classes and like the traditional kind of painting, art studio classes and photography. And there would be like the theater kids would do their thing and music classes. I mean, this big festival of the arts and it was all this whole, it was an amazing thing. And I think he kind of started this. Um, and it became a thing where everyone really, it became like such a cool thing to do where everyone kind of wanted to be a part of that. It was kind of a cool thing to do. And so, you want to get into that APR class, you can then get a prime booth space when you were a senior and like right in the front and like show off your work. And it was the, it was like one of the cool things that I thought was perfectly normal because of my high school experience. And then I got out of there, like, I mean, every school didn't have a art festival and you didn't have a AP art sex class and that wasn't cool. It was like, oh, you said football. That's, that's interesting. So yeah, it was, it was a fascinating yeah, thing. It sounds more like it. There's a lot of public school too, which was just fascinating to me. So. Um, then, so from, from high school, now let me actually ask you this because you had brought up the figure drawing at that age. Um, some of the modeling that I've done was, it was in a, a museum, so it was actually off campus. I don't know if the kids were getting any credit for being there, but it's one of those things where I feel like there's always got to be some sort of permission granted to yeah, see a yeah. naked body sort of thing. So what was that process like? It, it, even though, though you were AP, you were still a particular age. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't done in the actual high school itself. That would have been kind of okay. sketchy, you know. So what, what happened was there was a local community college that um, that uh, offered a lot of studio art classes, and I think you worked out some kind of deal where we could go. I think you had to be either a junior or a senior, so I think at least 16 or 17 before you were allowed to do it. Um, and then he worked out some kind of deal where on the weekends usually they had uh, open drawing sessions. And then he, yeah, worked on the deal. We could go there and do that. You pay a couple bucks for the model, like, and you could draw. And then he ran these workshops that were um, outside of the high school. And it was this really interesting place that um, I grew up in the, it was the Washington, D.C. area. And there was this cool little place called Glen Echo Park that used to be this, this amusement park back, like, in the 20s. And they actually closed down because they didn't want to integrate. Um, it was white people only, and, and they didn't want to let other people in, and they closed the whole park down. And they had roller coasters and public pools and all that stuff. And then it just kind of laid, uh, kind of laid, uh, falling apart until like the 80s, like the 40s to the 80s, or the 50s to the 80s. It kind of just completely disintegrated. And they, the park service took it over and they started rebuilding it as like this art colony kind of place where they would have, they would redo some buildings as like art spaces and, and places that have classes. And he was able to rebuild this one thing as this, the studio slash gallery. And so a lot of the high school kids you would send we we have classes down there outside of outside of school, like at, at night on weekends. And it was for like continuing education kind of style. So you had adults and you have um kids and then there would be like everything from still life and basic drawing classes and then the more advanced level would be like uh these figure drawing classes. And so uh that was kind of how that worked out. And then that and the community college stuff, um again, this was things that I thought were all kind of normal. 
and then they weren't really normal at all. Yeah, that's really not. You have to you have to really be in an environment where that's um, encouraged. Yeah. A big, yeah. Because uh, you know some some areas just don't care about art. They think yeah. it's you know more like um, something extra as opposed to something vital to, yeah, it, to the community. I think it's also the kind of neighborhood the community I grew up in were like we had awful sports teams like you know our high school football team hadn't won a game in like five years like our basketball <laughs> so, team our, our center yeah. was like six foot tall maybe you know I think the one year we won was because we had a transfer student who was like over six five and we won like that was kind of it and like I think we were really good at like soccer and lacrosse like total like suburban middle class kid sports you know and that was about it you know so as a result the arc became more valuable because I think a lot of the the families were like the you go ho- the houses for like oh like lawyers and doctors kids are going to my public school so it was a little more like white collar uh, parents as opposed to like it wasn't like the troubled high school it's like an inner city school or anything so it was more of a suburban school um, and so maybe that influenced us I guess the arts were kind of valued and um, things. and there was a lot of AT classes and, and going to college was like really encouraged from my, with high school and a lot of my classmates it was kind of the thing where yeah, of course you're going to go to college after you go to high school. What else are you going to do? You know, that's, that's the thing you do. Um, and so that was, again, I found out later, that's not a normal, that's not how normal people apparently, uh, that's not a normal experience for a lot of high schools. So I guess looking back, it was kind of a, a really fortunate place. And I was able to get, I don't know if I would have fallen into creative stuff if it wasn't for that kind of, in those formative years where everyone's kind of lost and figuring their stuff out. Um, might have gotten other things, who knows. So if you were around people um, of all different ages while you had these opportunities to take workshops and classes and everything, did you – what was it that that kept you motivated and going as opposed to looking at different skill levels? Did you ever just get, get really down on yourself thinking, oh, I'll never be that good? Kind of. I mean, it was kind of weird, too, because, like, I was looking at a lot of, um, a lot of like, fine art stuff, so a lot of, like uh, – our history books, being outside of D.C., we have the National Museum of Art, so I would go there a lot. Um, field trips, um, if I, some days I may have skipped school and gone down there instead and, like, hung out with, like, in the Picasso room or something, you know, and just hung out down there, which, again, is not normal for a high school kid. But, uh, no, it's really not. It's incredible, though. I yeah, like I was kind of really into it, you know? And um, I was kind of looking at these influences, and you see, like, in books, like, you know, oh, like, wow, there was a point in time where – a lot of these artists weren't very good either at drawing. And I guess there was that push to, like, I can do that. Like, kind of that, I guess when you're younger, like, you feel you can do anything. And maybe, like, that, that's channeled into creative stuff. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And so you think, like, I can totally draw that good. I'm just going to do it. Like, you know, like, screw it. And so after a while, and, and, and you're nowhere close to being, like, as good as any of those guys. But you think you are and you think you can be because you're young and you don't know any better. Um, and maybe part of that. But then also in these classes, too, you look like the the older, like, retirees are taking classes just to take, like, art classes, you know? And and some of them are like, oh, I used to be, like, an engineer or an architect, and now I'm retired and I'm I'm, I'm painting still lives. And so it's kind of cool, like, to be around that. And um, I don't know, I think that also with your classmates and things, everyone's kind of, you're kind of in it together. You become friends, and it's very encouraging, and you're, you're learning to talk to each other about your work and critiques. You're learning about critiquing, and you're learning about... Um, how to like see other cool things that people are doing and like kind of borrow techniques or borrow skills. Well, that's a cool way. That's a cool, you know, material you use or a cool process. And um, I think before you know it, it becomes this very like collaborative kind of, before you know it, you're kind of collaborating and you work on your own projects. You're 
you're you're feeding off each other, and I think that's a big part of it too. I think, uh, yeah, that kind of peer support too. So what? Because um, I have no idea how old you are. So what time frame were you in, like college and art or an art school? Uh, that was like the late late nineties. I went to school, and then um, okay. in the two thousands, yeah. Okay, so because mainly because I was wondering about um, how the the techniques because you're a graphic designer how you know that must that must be when you went to school versus you know somebody went to school in the 80s or whatever you know the, the cool yeah. computer technology is so different um you know but well, I, I went i went back for design later so i went back i only graduated about four years ago from like design school you know and went back so it was already the technology was already there kind of when i went around college the first time um there wasn't Graphic design, I guess, was still probably in like that weird analog, maybe just starting to get computers and it wasn't as done, you know, and um, the whole kind of industry really changed um, in, I guess, the two, around 2000, late 90s, 2000s, where, where people just, it was all computerized, you know, and all of a sudden um, it just started blowing up ex- exponentially in terms of, uh, you know, uh, technology and whatnot. But when I went back, you know, obviously you had all that stuff and, and, and that was kind of, I stopped doing art and drawing for years when I was doing, like, in, I lived in L.A. for a while, and I was doing film stuff, working on set, and um, then doing design stuff again. I wasn't really drawing as much and doing art anymore, and I was focusing on this stuff, and um, you know, went through school and learned all about, about branding and logo, making logos and design stuff, and, 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 and it was when I was there, I started thinking, well, I was interested in comics and stuff, too, and maybe I can pick it up again. I never really took it seriously until the last few years. Um, and I decided I want to do that as well. So okay. when you, yeah, when you got to um, to this point where we are now, we're talking about the the, the default trigger is why uh, we we got together to talk today. Sure. Um, and it's about student loan debt. So it sounds like you've done some, um, you know, different tours through advanced education, if you yeah, will. You know, definitely. <laughs> and because uh, I did as well, it's like I went for a bachelor's degree and then I went to massage school and it just, it was, I've taken like training separate from that. It's just, everything just seems like perpetually in school and perpetually in debt. Right. (laughs) It's so overwhelming. Um, When when did this really hit you? Well, um, what's the thing? It's like pretty much everyone that I know went to some sort of post high school thing, whether you went to college or junior college or like a trade school, like nursing school, whatever you went to some sort of post high school, uh, you know, training and, and everyone, everyone that I know pretty much has had to take out loans to do it. And so, uh, everyone kind of in my generation, you're talking, you're having conversations. And if anything comes up about money, it's always like, Oh, I don't have any. And then you go, Oh, student loans, you know, blah. And it was like our biggest bill every month. I'm like everyone I know has that. My wife has it. I have it. Our friends have it. Um, and it kind of doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, lawyer, whatever. You still have these giant bills every month. That's probably one of your biggest bills. And it was getting on me because when I finished school, it was also around the time when all the banks imploded. And uh, there was no jobs for anybody, especially just getting out of school. It was like, you know, five years experience for an internship kind of thing. That was a total buyer's market. And so it was rough to find things. And I was just, I was just freelancing here and there. And had bills coming in and it was so frustrating that all these banks that were, you go to the, the, the student loan, like fairs and they give you the brochures and the t-shirts and the free pens and stuff. And 
so right. it's, it's all fun and yeah, we'll totally work with you and we just want to help you and we're here for you. And then you get out of school, it's like, yeah, you pay us right now and um, you know, you can't find a job, that's too bad, you're going to pay us. And um, actually, in the beginning of the default trigger, there starts off with this dream sequence where he's kind of running from these bad guys and there's, I guess, like a phone conversation of, of him talking with, um, uh, it's supposed to be like a customer service reps. So those are all actual conversations that I've had with people. Um, with, with, with loan officers or bank reps, where it's like I was told, you know, I couldn't find a job and I was trying to get like some kind of deferment or something set up. And the guy's like, well, do your parents own a home? I'm like, yeah. Well, they should sell it and give you the money to pay your, to start paying your, to pay your loans back. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. I mean, I just want a, a few months break so I can find something here, you know? And, and it's like very like, um, you know, the one guy told me, you know, we have no obligation to work with you. And I was like, that's, Absolutely awesome. That's not what I told. That's what the little brochure said. Um, and so you get very upset and jaded. Where it's like, I mean, I'm not trying to get out of anything here. I just want like a sh- like a shot to do this. Like, to give me a chance. All the stuff just blew up, you know, and there's no jobs anywhere. And you hope for a little bit of a little bit of understanding, but then you, you, it's just sort of based the reality to the world here, where you know, big banking and big money, and you, you, you start getting jaded and angry and pissed off, and you're you're figuring out ways to to pay your bills and like you make all this money and then like it's gone as soon as you make it because you got a payment due and it's huge and um i guess i started thinking about it and you, you talk to your friends and you start reading articles and it starts seeing like news stories and um you start seeing it like i'm not the only person who has this oh it's pretty much everybody who's graduated college in the past 20 years has this problem on some level and it's only getting worse and it's it's not really um Nothing's really making, there's no, there, there are no solutions. Like we're, we've identified there's a problem with it, but there are no real solutions being given. And it's, oh, it's too bad. And then you see, oh, and why won't the economy fix itself? Why aren't people buying houses and cars? Oh, because they have no disposable income because all their money's going to student loans. And so it's a very cause and effect thing. And I just started thinking about, this could be a cool story. I don't know what it could be, but there's something here. And I, I think I was starting to think about it for a couple of years, really. And then um, you read articles and see stories, and, and there's a lot of buzzwords that pop up. And one of them is always like slave to debt, like enslaved to student debt or just debt in general. And that that terminology, slave slavery, kept being kept popping up, and it's a bit of a exaggeration. But I started, I guess, I, that got my mind a little more, and thinking, well, why are why is why is this generation of college graduates really smart, intelligent, educated people? Like, why would they need to be, like, slaves to debt for? How does, how does that work out? Like, who would want to do that? And then, of course, you start thinking of, ooh, conspiracies. What could be some possible, some possible reasons as to why? Who could be behind that? And that's kind of, I think, a story started to grow out of that. I love that you, you basically, like, addressed, like, the next two questions that I had. I, it, because it was, that's the, the fact that you created the default trigger, um, and we're going to talk about the elements that make up the story, but um, there's there's so much news that gets overlooked. Or what you what you said is something that I noticed is that nobody's talking about a solution that right. actually seems plausible. Everybody like Elizabeth Warren. There was a great I was reading in the, the Boston Globe this morning. It said Elizabeth Warren cites an official estimate that the government will gain $185 billion in profits from the loan program over roughly the next decade. But the same federal agency that produced that estimate 
also said it's just as likely, if not more so, that the government will lose $95 billion over that period. So it's like what we're getting is we're getting Elizabeth Warren and then we're getting the people who are her opponents saying completely opposite things about where the interest of the student loans goes and who's really hurting. I mean, it sounds like some people are saying, oh, boo-hoo, the government's really hurting. We're really doing all we can. And then Elizabeth Warren, who was like, she should be wearing a, a cape and tights because right. <laughs> she, she's our champion. And um, it's it's just amazing how they're looking at the same data. And data is fun. I used to be like in uh, database management and stuff. Data is so fun because in the sense that because it's terribly boring, but it's fun in the, the sense that you can make it say anything you want to exactly. say. Exactly. You always can. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And that's why you really can't believe a statistic that's out there. Well, I kind of feel like the student loan crisis or bubble thing, we're treating it in a lot of ways like a check engine light on your car, where it's like, I'm aware there's some sort of problem. I'm not really seeing My car's still going fine. It's good. I'm all good. You let it go for six months, and then one day your car doesn't start anymore. It's like, I wonder, I wish I had a warning. I wish someone would have told me my car was screwed up. And then, you know, before you know it, boom. And it's just been there the whole time. And we're not, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, there's a few people out there that are that are kind of ringing the bells, as it were, and, and, and making a lot of noise of that. But I kind of feel like we're we're maybe a couple years away from something really big, like like some kind of bubble or imploding or something, where I, a funny story where it's like, you know, I've talked to people that are like lawyers, like practicing lawyers and like engineers, right? And they all went to school for these things and they have really good degrees and they're doing really good jobs. And they're, they have their loans in good standing, and no bank will give them a home loan because they have too much debt. And I find that fascinating that, like, a lawyer can't get a home loan because he That's chose really to sickening, isn't it? And it's weird that, like, in the bank's eyes, the garbage man down the street who may have, like, a felony conviction is a safer bet than the guy who went to law school and was practicing as a lawyer. Like, he, they want to give him, they, want, they, don't, they don't want that guy the money, and sure he's a nice guy. But, the economy's kind of wasn't built around around people with certain levels of jobs and you buy homes and you buy cars and then vacations and all the discretionary income that kind of build the economy is built around the idea of people that have good jobs and they, they spend money on things. And now all of a sudden people with good jobs can't spend money on things. And um, it's like, well, we're all renting apartments and renting houses and um, there's something wrong with that picture and it's not healthy for like a basic economics. I don't think you need to be like a, have an advanced degree in finance to realize it's a bad situation. And, and maybe we're not there yet, but I think in the next few years, that's really going to maybe become a much bigger deal. And, and I think it's going to hit like car, the car industry and home industry. And uh, it's going to hack you because if, yeah, these people who traditionally have kind of been really important part of the economy can't contribute to it, then where are we going to be? Well, we're going to be in porn. <laughs> this is maybe this is uh it was just so funny that you know because i i was reading the news this morning when i read you know that bit about elizabeth warren and uh of course one of the headlines is about duke university's bell knox porn star and how she's on this crusade to validate her porn career as a viable means to pay for college because duke is very expensive and you know it's one of those just cliche laughable joke things that people always say when they go to a strip club is oh she's paying her way through college right but it's a really big leap to go from you know g-strings and pasties in a strip club to like flying out to la or vegas and 
doing porn, like, you know, going under contract and doing porn, um, there's, to me, there's a really big difference there between yeah, a stripper and a porn star. And many of the critics uh, that she's facing is, you know, like Huffington Post and Jezebel, like all these people are really kind of trashing on her. Um, you know, she's sort of presenting it as like how empowering and how she's such a great feminist icon and everything at this point. It's like, you're still young. You still need to kind of shut up a little bit and learn. Yeah, exactly. But um, so they're saying that, you know, she's what she's doing isn't right because it's still a form of sexual slavery that no one should have to abuse their bodies, take a cum shot to the face or risk STDs just to pay for an education. And that is a really actual valid point where if you're doing it by just choice, like you think I want to do this, this is a field I want to explore and go into, that's one thing. But the fact that this is being like, like you, it's not a norm. Like I don't want to make it sound like every girl in college is doing this, but there's a lot more now with the presence of webcams everywhere. Like every computer has a built-in webcam and there's Chatterbait and there's my free cams. And I mean, there's all these really easy access tools for people to get online and make their own porn. And um, I just, it, I was just wondering like what that says about job prospects and the viability yeah. of paying for education at this point. It's like, it's especially bad. for women, you know, not exclusively for women, but especially for women. Yeah. It's not like, like oh, she goes sure, to some like, some like, some like rinky dink community college. I mean, Duke's a really good school and it's really hard to get into. So like, she's not, she's a really smart person. And she felt somehow that her only option was to go out and do that. And that was the, that was the best situation for her to pay for it was, and that's, that's a really kind of scary thought that, you know, that maybe, I mean, obviously, yes, she did choose to do that as, like, her, her after-school job for Burridge, but at the same time, it's like, that was her best opportunity, and that's kind of a really but, scary I mean, there's prospect. a big difference. Yeah, there, I mean, it's like, hmm, do I go work at TGI Fridays for $2 an hour, you know, hopefully get some tips, or do I go do this on the weekends, you know? And the point, and, yeah, the thing about, too, when you read, like, a lot of these articles, you read, you know, don't read the comments, I read the comments a lot of times, and you'll see people being like, you know, back when I was in school, I used to deliver pizzas. Well, it's like you're not paying for college delivering pizzas part-time anywhere. Like, that doesn't happen. And I think yeah. part of the reason why that is is if you kind of read the deeper level of the articles, too, they talk about how, how college tuition has blown up, like, exponentially as opposed to, like, um, just general inflation. Like, college used to be very – it used to cost, say, as much as, as a pretty reliable used car, and now it's like buying a brand-new Mercedes. And so there's, there's the level of – yeah, you used to be able to, to work 10 hours a week at a fast food place or doing burgers or whatever. At, at, right, and, and you'd and, actually have something to speak of at, with your paycheck. <laughs> yeah, but now when even like a state college is, is 10, 15,000 a semester or something, and, and you know, if, if you're in a particular industry where you have to go to certain levels of school, a lot of them are private schools, could you good? Like, you have to start losing 20000 $30,000 a year easy, you know? And you're not making that kind of money delivering pizzas from a Navy at all. So it becomes like, how are you paying for that? And, you know, I mean, even in school, you all know the guy who gets busted for selling pot or whatever out of his dorm room. That happens a lot because they probably have to to, to pay for things, you know. Um, and this is just another level of that in a lot of ways, you know. Oh, there we go. There, there's a there's a sequel. Yeah. For, for the default trigger will be the drug industry trade. Right. That's why that, that, that's like an old story. We all we all knew to be on the floor. He was selling the he was like selling like bootleg liquor in the 
and the Snapple bottles or the guy selling pot. Like, that was pretty, uh, that was a pretty standard. Every school had that guy, but, um, yeah. now I feel like it's like leveling up to like serious. You have like, like Walter White and like the college dorm pretty soon, you know? Well, I went to a, a school that only had about maybe it was less than 20 male students at the time and half of them probably dropped out before we even got to graduation. So it's, it's the school itself is totally different now, but it had been an all girls school until the year that I started. So, um, I think our environment was extremely different. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't, we didn't necessarily have the sorts of dangers. Um, and it was a really, really tiny school. So, you know, I, when I see things like TV shows or movies or, you know, even in the news, like these kids at Seton Hall with guns, I'm like that's Seton fucking Hall. That's pretty like, scary. How, yeah. how is that even possible? And it's just that my environment was so completely benign. I mean, there was some drugs that I heard of. Like, I never even saw them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you knew they were around. <laughs> so it's just, it's interesting how, um, how from school to school, how an experience can be so drastically different. And um, when, when you were making the comic, here you don't talk about what the school system part of it was like you're immediately into post grad yeah um let's let's face life let's you know i'm home i'm broke i gotta do something and you get this phone call saying i will take care of your debt if you do this two-week job but (laughs) you know but here's the thing you're not going to remember any of it yeah and that if you get that phone call You'd be like, that's really scary. But then at the same time, it's like you get, you're getting dozens of phone calls from debt people and telling you your life is screwed and you're defaulting all this money and they're going to come after you. And it's like, what are your, at that point, you're just like, I guess this sounds like a good opportunity. Does it scare you down the phone? I don't know. The simple fact that, like, if if it was, if it was something criminal, like if it was two weeks doing something criminal, but you remember and you have the guilt and you have worry and you have shame and uh, fear, all of these other possibilities that would normally prohibit somebody from taking a deal like that. Right. But instead you at least brought up this caveat saying, Oh, but you won't remember. Yeah. I can do anything for I you. Can, anything. I can't imagine anybody saying no to this. Yeah. Because I mean, there would be, but also the, the fear thing would keep you from wanting to do it. Like if someone said, you know, all you have to do is like, you're going to go rob a bank or something with me, right? And and it's it's risky, but you might do it, but you might not because you might be scared. Like, why well, don't I go to prison? Because I'm like, I'm just like a, I'm just a short white guy. I'm not going to do well in prisons. I'm not, I'm not going to risk it, you know? Um, but if they're like, well, you can't remember what we're, what you're going to be used for. That could be lots of really scary things. You have no idea. Are they going to send you off to kill people? Are they going to do experiments on you? Are they going to... Are they going to take out your organs? And what, what are they going to do? And, and why? Why is it so important that you're not allowed to remember? That even makes it more scary, I think. Um, and so uh, I thought that was an interesting thing, thing, too, because it kind of played into this idea of if this is happening kind of in the world, and no one will be talking about it because no one can remember what they did to fix their problem. Um, and I thought that would be an interesting kind of way to set up the, the bad guys and, and the things that happen. Well, is the book available right now? It is. Um, I've got it on my website right now. Yeah, I, I kind of do it as a free slash pay what you want 
uh, kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, because I just wanted to get it out there, and I want people to know work, and I thought that could be kind of a uh, is a fun way to do it, and it's, it's been getting pretty good feedback doing it that way. Um, yeah, if you go over on my website, uh, it's, uh, my, my, it's just my name, ChristopherKosek.com, and uh, you can find it there. Because I'm really interested in if we can get like a Twitter dialogue going about would people take the deal or not. I really want. Yeah, we need to hashtag default trigger, um, and get that get that running. I so I want to talk about the the feel of the book, the visual feel okay. to it, um, because you've like I said, you've already got um, your character after school, and he's desperate. So you've really limited the colors, the color palette, and you've got like these big shaded black ink areas, which uh, I love when, because the type of books that I read generally need that. They have that uh, suffocating noir and suspense feel. And uh, with you, you've got conspiracy theories, you've got some science fiction, you've got a little bit of cyberpunk feel to it. So I was wondering how you like as an artist how did you decide the tone the textures and the color palette to, to choose what was right for this book so um so on this book too i guess to mention like i did everything on it myself i wrote it i did the, i did the art and lettering all the stuff on it and knowing that it just kind of out of necessity because i always have difficult to find you know collaborators when you're kind of starting off and so when i was kind of um being a designer and, and i worked as an art director one of the things that's really important is you have to justify kind of your budget and your time versus what you can do, right? Because it doesn't really matter if you come up with the coolest idea in the world to cost a million dollars and you only have $5,000. That's a useless idea. So you have to figure out what's possible. And so for me, I was like, well, I've got a full-time job. I've got a wife. I've got a baby at home. And I want to do this comic. What can I do? And I have no money to hire anybody. What can I do? I have maybe if I'm lucky an hour a night before I have to fall asleep. Um, I have a lunch break, but that's about an hour, and that's about it to work on this thing on a daily basis. So then I start thinking about, well, this is a darker kind of a noir feel to it, so then that means, like, well, I can draw huge, big black areas, and that'll be kind of creepy and mysterious, but it also means that I don't have to, like, draw really detailed stuff in. I can kind of hide things in shadows and work in shadows, which I, like, I wanted to do anyways, think it worked conceptually. And then for like the color, because I had this greenish kind of, it's a, it's a kind of a three colors, black, there's white of the paper, and then there's this green color, which I kind of used as, a, as an all-around kind of like a middle tone. And I kind of felt like, well, um, you know, green's always that creepy kind of color with the fluorescent light, but it's a little darker than that. But I kind of wanted to give it something a little more dimension. Um, just the black and white book wasn't enough. I wanted to give it that extra color. And uh, again, it came down to well, I can do, I can give it. I think just that one color can can really push it to a different level visually, and it won't take me 12 hours a night to, to do a fully rendered colored page um, with like Photoshop, and and that takes a lot of time. Um, and so I was really thinking about but how can I get this done in a few months, in a few months, and not and not have to spend eight hours a day drawing it, and because I just thought that time didn't exist for me. What influences did you have from other comics that you read that that really inspired you to to make those decisions? Um, I look at a lot of stuff. Um, like you know, like a lot of indie, like the indie self-published or kind of like the like the zine level comics have that 
that one color. They use like this one light, uh, like a light blue color is used a lot. Like uh, Jeff yeah, Meyer. Awesome. Like, yeah, like uh, I'm thinking of Dean Tripp's new book, something yeah. terrible. He did that. One of my favorite books is um, Jeff Lemire, the one called The Nobody. I think it's The Invisible Man, kind of retold. He does that. Oh, he does that okay. with this blue color as a. Um, uh, it's really cool. Uh, it's a vertigo. It's really kind of neat book, and it's just black and white with this kind of blue, light blue middle tone color. And it's amazing how much depth and all you you can create with just this one color. Um, with is just you know traditional ink and stuff. And so that was kind of an influence. Um, but then I was looking at like um, uh, other black and white kind of art, things like you know Sin City, where you use heavy blacks and He's kind of carving things out of the black as opposed to drawing. He's not really drawing shadows as much as he's drawing light, you know? And then um, you look at other guys like uh, Brian Wood, his uh, earlier um, like Channel Zero. I don't know if you know that book, but that was kind of... I don't one know of, that one, no. It was one of his earlier projects. It's kind of out of school. It had this, like, this zine, um, kind of Xerox, heavy black kind of aesthetic. It's about, like, meth media and that kind of stuff. But that was a super heavy, dark um, kind of look to it, which is kind of neat. Um, and then looking at a whole bunch of other guys that were looking heavily and like in black and white and then looking with like all the guys looking with like limited talent stuff and kind of yeah. looking just seeing how they did it and figuring out is it possible to do a finished looking comic that isn't full Photoshop, fully rendered? Is that possible? And I was like, yeah, it's possible. These, these, these guys did it very well. So maybe I can borrow some ideas from there. There's um a a great collective of guys called Comic Twart where yeah. they um yeah. like Ron Salas and uh, I think Gabe Hardman's part of it, um, Steve Bryant and uh, Francesco Francavilla. It's just it's so cool because they all have a similarity in style, but yet they're all very distinct. Right. <laughs> and um and that's they they really have the perfect mastering of the heavy dark inks and uh, and the white of the paper right it's just it's amazing to see because when i when i've sat through an art class and they talk about draw the negative space don't draw the object that you're looking at i you know when i was younger i still I, it's not that i didn't understand what they were saying like i knew what was being said but i couldn't figure out how to do that yeah yeah like it makes sense to you, like in a, in a as like words, as like a lesson, but then as a practice, it's a little bit different. Different to figure that out to see it. And some people just like they kind of just get it right away. Well, I think what I, I think graphic design really influenced how I did things too, because of thinking about that kind of stuff, where you you know how how ink works on on paper, and you're kind of you're understanding things about um you know positive and negative and, and that white space and, and filling things up with ink versus letting the paper breathe and, and all these things that are kind of, yeah, I'm doing like a brochure for a healthcare system, but I'm using some of the same kind of thinking to do that as I am drawing a comic in a lot of ways too. You know what did it for me, I think, that that finally made it um, real and, and made it actually work? Because I'm not an artist. I don't, I don't draw. I'm terrible. But um, I do pumpkin carvings. <laughs> and you're working That's you're hard. when you're pump That's when you're pumpkin hard. carving, you're doing the negative. Yeah, totally. So I would have to take a picture that somebody else drew. Um and I would take it into Photoshop and you sort of like, you know, posterize the layers and bring down the threshold so that there's only, you know, 
three or four possible shades. There's the shade you completely cut out. There's the mid-tone that you partially cut out. And then there's the flesh of the pumpkin that's going to stay. And that's the the one exercise that I ever figured out in negative space. That's, that's hard. I, I'm not good at pumpkin carving, so I've never been good at that. That's tricky because you get you to the negative, then you get to figure out what you're going to leave to, like, connect it all together, you know? Yeah, it has to always connect or you're going to lose pieces through the middle. Yeah, when I was, like, 10, I was like, why did it fall out? I was like, oh, because you didn't leave anything. <laughs> yeah. But now you have a, a, a child to raise. So yeah. I, I, I imagine there will there will be crafts like pumpkin carving in your future. Yeah, thank God for, like, YouTube and Google. I can figure all this stuff out through there. I can, like, watch tutorials on how to, how to carve a pumpkin, you know? <laughs> And I, so I, I, have, I have no shame. Like I'm, 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 I'm doing things like how do you adjust a baby, like a child's seat in a car? Like I'm doing all this stuff. I'm like, I don't know how to do anything without YouTube or tutorials, you know, instructables. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's an, in, there's got to be an instructables. Yeah, how to, how to change diaper? Like I don't know. So yeah, well, because it's your first, yeah, right? Exactly. Okay, so then if you have any more, I, I I figured it out pretty fast. So I was like, "What do you do? This is this is complicated." <laughs> it is. It's very complicated. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, what other projects um, are you presently working on, or do you is there anything that you could talk about in the future that um, you know it's 2014, but we're like already a quarter in at this point. So, That's what crazy. can I know? What can people look forward to? Well, I think right now until I finish moving, I'm kind of putting this a whole long moving. I'm doing a lot of writing right now because I don't have the space to draw and do all that stuff. Um, and but right now, I think my goal for the next year is to start doing more collab- more collaborations. Um, I kind of did all the drawing in my early work because I kind of had to. I wanted to get work made to show people that I can make a comic. But I think I'm trying to push more of the writing and the design angle than say the art angle, where it's like I can, I'm kind of getting away with art. I know it's a little rough, um, but there's a lot of people who are much better than me. Um, and I want to work with them. So right now I'm doing a lot more collabor. I'm trying to do a lot more collaborations. I got some. Sh- I want to kind of go backwards a little bit and do some more shorts, um, like you know six pagers, four pagers. Um, I love them. They're so fun. Yeah, they're, fun. they're hard to do. I think that's they're hard. I, they're hard. To, they're hard to seems, finish a story. It seems like it would be easy because it's only like four pages. But the whole complete story where you care about a character and then there's a twist or something at the end to kind of sell it. That's very difficult to do that. And 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 I kind of learned that the hard way. And um, so I'm writing some things about that. Um, um, most of my stuff I'm interested in tends to skew towards like the sci-fi or like the supernatural side. Um, I think that's just the childhood group watching the X-Files and going to Catholic school. Those two things are there kind of would, can kind of explain that, I guess. Um, so doing that, um, I'm, I've got one that hopefully when the artist can get a chance, he's going to jump in this. It's, it's about two guys in a bunker. So things happen and it's creepy. So there's that. Um, coming soon, hopefully, and I've got, um, I'm working with, um, Greyhaven Comics. Do you know those guys? Yeah, yeah, I know them. Yeah, so they're, they're really cool, and, um, they've actually, they're really cool in that, like, I submitted to their open calls, and I've got a couple projects through there that they have really long lead time, so I've been writing and working on these, like, little four-page shorts and getting a few things going with that, and that's really exciting, because, uh, um, I think it's really cool that, like, it's as, as, as much opportunity as there is in comics, there's not, always an opportunity like when you're just starting to get like your work out there. So they're really cool in that they, their model is built around it on more up and coming talent and, and getting people chances. And that's pretty cool. Um, so doing some of that, um, I've got one about like a, a supernatural thing about um, a girl in therapy. That's scary. 
And then I've got one about, um, Oluchiwana did a first-person perspective, kind of a male perspective, when my son was born, and, like, all the freak-out that happens on, like, not knowing what's going on, but still having to be the supportive person, and, like, how do you freak out on the inside by being supportive on the outside, and that's kind of scary. I've never seen a story about, written about childbirth from the dad's perspective before, so that was kind of something I wanted to do. Um, yeah, so those are kind of some things I'm working on right now. I'm writing other things. I got to I have this one, I'm trying to figure out like a, um, like a longer term, like a mini series that I've been writing. I'm taking my time with it, really embracing, um, a full script writing, the revision process. And that's more of like a post-apocalyptic kind of thing, but really trying to develop characters and create, um, an interesting story and, and creating all the stuff that I want to get in there and, and really taking my time with it. Well, now that you've moved and you have a baby to worry about, um, uh, are you changing plans for convention season at all? Yeah. Are you just like I had, just I had not planned, doing it? I really wanted to go to um, Emerald City this year, but I actually got laid off before like the holidays or on the holidays. So that kind of changed my plans, and so like I just found a new job, so we're kind of kind of starting over. So obviously, any plans to go to conventions that was that was on hold. So now maybe wait till next year um, to do that, and kind of not thinking about. Uh, probably not for the summer because of like, you know, all the moving and stuff and that's going to be just crazy. Um, so I think that, um, probably have to wait till like, you know, the winter or maybe the next summer, which sucks. But, um, I want to do, I've never, I've only really been to like small regional cons. So I want to go to some of these bigger ones and um, that's where all the, the cool kids hang out and do all the cool meeting and networking and, and you meet all your, your collaborators and get off Twitter and, and, uh, that's when it's a place to, to be. So I want to do that really soon. Well, that's cool. Hopefully, um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever run into each other because you're on the West Coast now. Yeah, I'm going to be in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So. Okay. Yeah, I doubt I'd be heading that way. But it would be great if I was. You never um, know. They... Comics are small enough world where you run, you run into people. So. You do. That's Well, that's what's pretty cool, you know, is that there are uh, opportunities to run into people. Um and that's why the conventions really are important because even though we network and email and Twitter and all right. of this stuff, um, you know, it's just nice to be able to blow off steam after the convention and just, you know, everybody saddles up to the same bar and yeah. you're exhausted and, you know, you just really get to know each other without without the stress of the show. And it's, it's much different when you know someone, like, as a name and a face that you've hung out with as opposed to just, like, an avatar. Right. You know, it's just yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you can establish a a real connection and a relationship. And when you're looking for collaborators, it's it's really important that you have a good communication process between each other. And I think with anything creative too, like some of your you're going to learn a lot of creative stuff just from like the conversations in the cafe or the. But it's the oldest story in the book of like how many great art art movements have started in a bar or a cafe. I mean, pretty much all of them. So. I mean, you think of like all the creative people, every generation, that's where they, that's where the ideas are exchanged. It's just people coming together, talking about stuff that's going on. That's where you're probably like, who knows? Like I go to one of these cons and I meet people, all my Twitter friends and we're talking about stuff and I come out of there with like a thousand new ideas for new stuff that I want to do and new, new ways of thinking about stuff. And that's kind of the exciting thing that I'm, I guess, would look forward to the most is that what you come back, what, what you would bring back with you. It wasn't like physical merch, all the all the cool experience and the, the stuff you learned coming back from there. 
That's true. It is reinvigorating, you know, yeah. especially if you've had a long winter and you just sort of are a little bit defeated. You you get re-energized when you're around other people who become excited about projects. It's like, yeah, I want to be excited about this project, too. And, yeah. and all of a sudden the energy feels like it's back. And so while you're really secretly, you secretly nervously listen to all the, the creator-owned, like, announcements, like, no one better announce my idea that I've been working on for the past two years. No one, no one better do it. <laughs> exactly. You're, like, you're yeah. really excited about it. You're incredibly nervous that something's like, oh, going close enough. You know? Oh, no. Somebody else did a comic about student loan debt. Oh, no. What well, was part of the reason why I released it when I, when I did it? It's like, well, convention season starting. So at least if someone announces it, I can say I had mine out before you even announced it. So you can't, you can't say anything about that. You know, I got it out there. And I'm always paranoid about, like, what if – forever and someone just like comes up they're doing a book an image I'm like great I'm screwed yeah. you know, I can't do it you know but maybe <laughs> maybe someone else out there there's some creator that's like secretly cursing under his breath because they have that pitch and they I ruined it for them I don't know maybe maybe not there's always another story to tell yeah and I, yeah. I forget what creator said it but it's like if that happens to you then that means you were kind of um kind of pushing along the just the, the baseline of the zeitgeist. You weren't going far enough to make it special if that if it's someone else has your idea, you know? And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean there's a you know, there's a million zombie stories and yeah, you know, a million a million superhero stories and everybody has the opportunity to put their own um point of view and you know, what they're gonna do to and you've got a, a twist and like I said, conspiracies in yours. So um you know, it's unlikely somebody would duplicate it exactly. I, I think it would be really cool if, um, like, one of the reasons why I did this, too, like, I, I, I kind of thought about how, you know, art and, and literature and all those things, they've always talked about the issues of their day and their stories, whether, you know, it's someone that's very apparent and something's very hidden within subtext and meaning. And I, this is one of the biggest issues right now going around for people, like, under – you know, under, if you're like under 40, pretty much, you know, if you graduated college in the past 20 years, it affects you, you know, someone who, who it affects you. So why, why have I never really seen any of this appear? I've never seen it like really come out like this in like TV, movies, books, nothing that I'm aware of, comics, not seeing the story anywhere, but it's affecting everyone. So I kind of wanted to, to do that as a story. And I think it would be really cool if this became like a whole, a subgenre of people, of people doing every kind of thing about about these sorts of problems, these real world issues that are kind of affecting us. And um I guess, yeah, like how do you make it's hard to make student loans interesting, but figuring out twists and, and things that and I think one guy actually told me he was expecting it to be some just some sad, mopey thing about woe is me, I can't afford my loans, you know, I have five jobs and it wasn't about that and I was really surprised that you did something interesting with that. Um so yeah, that was my goal. So I think I think sometimes um you know, with comics, we can get um, thinking about all oh, those crazy, like, cosmic things or crazy things that are happening. And sometimes there's, like, a story, like, right in your lap that, that's, like, in your life right now that, that could be interesting. And um, I guess that's where the right what you know comes from, but they don't necessarily mean, like, it doesn't have to be autobiographical. It can just be, like, take that little slice of life right outside your window and you can do something cool with it. There, Yeah, there's um one other creator that I know who uh, who takes – some things like this who takes some social issues and uh, he's out of the UK. His name is Daryl Cunningham. And um, the book that I read was called psychiatric tales and I loved it. And what's funny is he has a, a similar premise. Like his inks are not as, uh, as noir as yours. Um, but he does a very simple palette 
and his figures are very like more cartoony like everything's very very simplified and you can tell like the way that the buildings are drawn there's you know it's windows but no details that sort of right. thing and you know so he's he takes on the medical community he takes on Anne Rand and he does these stories you know in a in a similar sort of vein but he keeps he keeps everything very real whereas yeah. I like how you're sort of taking the the speculative fiction approach and uh you know and saying like hey there's uh this technology might not really exist or maybe it does we don't know but I'm putting it in my story <laughs> yeah I mean I, I I didn't want it to become like I know there's those types of stories that are really like activist you know and that yeah, yeah. isn't necessarily my like I I watch maybe more news than I than I should and I'm aware of the stuff and I see things and like I don't want to be like a like a fist in the air activist guy you know but I kind of also want to make commentary on stuff that's happening and so I felt like you can do that you can have a little fun with some completely crazy fictional things but still talk about contemporary issues and um yeah I think there's a lot of stuff out there so I think it's there's so much you can do um but yeah it is kind of interesting to see um kind of generation of the call millennials or the name is for it, but like to get this rap as being like kind of lazy and entitled and don't care about anything. But like I think people care about a lot of stuff. They're just maybe uh maybe, you know, it's it's maybe now coming out coming out as a parent in some of the art and the writing. Um maybe maybe it is, but I think there's room there's room to do it. Well Chris, thanks so much for, for taking the time out of your crazy changing schedule and and you know i know that you're you're going through all these adjustments with your yeah. new life and everything so thanks so much it's been great well thank you um, well thank you for having me i, I definitely we, appreciate that you wanted to, to talk to me on the podcast about it that was really cool yeah i was so i was so glad that you you know you hit me up on twitter because you know we had been following each other for a while and everything yeah. so it's like yeah new story absolutely and um you know, like I said, guys, it's called the default trigger. It's 54 pages with the the conspiracy theory style. So, um, once again, Chris, uh, shout out your your website and your Twitter handle so that people can follow you. So I have my website. Just my name. It's uh, ChristopherKosek.com. Uh, you can find pretty much everything, all my design stuff, and all my comic stuff on there. And then I'm on Twitter. It's just at ckosek. I'm on there a lot. You can talk to me. I'm nice. I think I'm funny. Probably, probably not. But I talk to people. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much where to find me. There's too many places. Well, thank you so much. And uh, guys, you can, of course, follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter and everything else. Like the show notes for this episode are at amberunmasked.com. And, um, you know, once again, I think it would be a really fun idea if we could hashtag default trigger and talk about whether or not you would take the deal of uh, taking a secret two-week job if it paid off all of your student loans, but you had no memory of what you did during that time. So let's that'd get be, that rolling. That would be good. We're gonna, I'm going to hashtag that. Uh, hashtags only work though if people like use them. So it becomes like you know the sad, lonely hashtag that no one uses. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that'd be but, kind of interesting. Would you do that? Would you do that? I think that's uh, you know now that the when the episode's out, I think that's something we we should get rolling on and. Uh, see how many people are brave enough to do it. <laughs> would you do it, Amber? I think I would, as long as I had no memory of it. Yeah, I probably would have done it. <laughs> Why don't I have a pancreas like six to ten years later? Why don't I have like, lungs anymore? <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those things where I'm like, uh, you know, kind of in a different situation. Like I don't have 
a, a family to worry about. Like if I'm gone yeah. for two weeks, you know, it's like if something dreadful happens to me, it's like, okay, my parents will be upset. Maybe I don't even think my cat would miss me. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. I have, I really have like a lot less to lose than perhaps somebody else, somebody like you, you've got a wife and, and baby, um, you, you know, so it's, it's a really different scenario. And, uh, and that would definitely take things into consideration for people. I, yeah, you know, I think they would, they would weigh that. Would your friends notice if you weren't on Facebook or Twitter for two weeks? I think some people might, some people might not notice, but that would be weird, yeah. you know? Like, how do they fix that? There's all kinds of things, like, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And be sure to send your feedback. Let us know how you like the episode. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.